This morning, we continue with our sermon series on the Apostles' Creed, and today we examine the words, I believe in Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Ghost, and born of the Virgin Mary. To help us in our exploration, our second reading today comes from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Listen now for God's word to us today. He, Jesus, left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, prophets are not without honor except in their hometown and among their own kin, and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them, and he was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went among the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I began preparing for today's message, my mind quickly went to the question, how am I going to give this congregation a cosmic birds and the bees talk? (laughs) But then after some reflection, I was drawn towards Thomas Jefferson. Here's why. In 1821, Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States and writer of the Declaration of Independence, was a, 74, was a 71-year-old retiree living in his palatial plantation in the Virginia countryside. During that time, Jefferson wrote to a dear friend that in this period of his life, it was his habit to spend an hour or so before bed each night reading and contemplating a passage of Scripture. Now, given that Jefferson penned one of the world's most enduring documents on the subject of freedom while holding scores of his fellow humans in bondage, I would have highly endorsed his looking at his life through the lens of Scripture. Except the book Jefferson was reading was not the same Bible that you and I will find in the pews here at Fourth Church today. Instead, he was reading from a selection of scriptures he literally cut and pasted together with a razor from French, English, Greek, and Hebrew versions of the Bible that he had procured. And Jefferson, being the good enlightenment deist he was, fascinated by science, weary of superstition, decided to cut out those portions of the Gospels that smacked to him of magic and the unreasonably miraculous. He gave this volume the title, The Life and Morals of Jesus Christ. So, as you might suspect, when it comes 
to Mary. Jefferson's Bible has a slightly different take. Drawing from primarily Luke's gospel, Jefferson introduces Mary as Joseph's espoused wife, yes, who was great with child, check, then goes on to say, and so it was, while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. That's it. No annunciation by the angel Gabriel. No, may it be according to, may it be with me according to your spirit by Mary. Nothing about Joseph quietly seeking to dismiss Mary as his wife after discovering her mysterious pregnancy without him. Jefferson conveniently skipped over all these details in the same way that hip hop and electronica DJs of my youth skip beats over a record to create the musical harmony that they prefer. So here comes DJ Jazzy Jefferson, <laughs> mixing in the beat of a scientific, rational discourse into the gospel while skipping over all those discordant passages about virgin births, healing miracles, and nature-defying acts like walking on water. But when it comes to scripture, we are all mix masters. Not just Jefferson. We all cut and paste our favorite passages and figures into a canon within a canon until the sacred text conforms to our own tailor-made theologies. In my college years, as I was seeking out churches, I found myself one evening putting denominational mission statements on the floor. Not my idea of a great Friday night. I don't know if I'd recommend that to anybody. But in my case, I put these statements on the floor, comparing and contrasting them. I liked this one's welcome policy, but not this one's Christology. I liked another's ecclesiology, the, the study of the, uh, of the uh, church, but not their pneumatology, their study of the spirit. I remember at that time just wishing that I could cut and paste together everything I favored and let all the doctrines and values I found unjust, distasteful, or just downright embarrassing just hit the cutting room floor. Perhaps you've tried this exercise before as well. For many, this business of Mary and the Holy Spirit is a beat we'd rather skip over, a belief some would rather confine to the cutting room floor. We who are uncomfortable with the divergent paths of faith and science would rather skip it. To borrow the phrasing of Mark, we like the crowds of Nazareth take offense at conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. We take offense at the scandal of this all too mutual mixing of divinity and humanity the great I am and a poor teenager. This identification of a holy savior with mere peasants. How could God's chosen liberator be the carpenter who puts in the floorboards? But if we were to wind back the clock to the first century world of Mediterranean empires, the prospect of gods and humans mixing, even making babies, wasn't all that odd or offensive. 
They were part of the way in which rulers burnished their reputations and peoples established their identities with narrative and symbolic power. Greek gods, for instance, typified the phrase all too human in their often irascible behavior, reflecting the most troublesome human traits. Take Apollo, a poster child, if there ever was, for gods behaving badly. In his child, Asclepius, born of a human mother, Princess Corinus. Story goes that Corinus fell in love with another human being while she was pregnant with child. And then in a rage, Apollo sends his twin sister, Artemis, to kill her. But they spare the child. And Asclepius, like many demigods and heroes in the Greek pantheon, goes on to actually do much good. He becomes a renowned healer and taught the art of medicine. And his staff with the snake coiled around it would go on to become the very familiar symbol of medicine in the modern world. Asclepius's human origins were not considered the source of his power. Only the font of his compassion and understanding of ordinary human suffering. As such, he was considered among the first century's savior gods. How interesting. Women like Princess Corina, Corinus were often incidental to the main plot of Greek mythologies. And so it might seem in Mark's gospel as if Jesus' mother is much the same. She is but one of many names we are given in Jesus' earthly family, such as Joseph, James, and even sisters. But none of them save Mary make it into the creed. She is one of only three humans mentioned in it. But she is no royal like Corinus. Mary is at her core, as theologian Wilton Gaffney reminds us, a Jewish woman. She is a young first century Jewish woman, an identity that for all but a few lucky was associated with poverty and for whom the hierarchies and patriarchy of Mediterranean societies constricted her life. In the words of soul group Sly and the Family Stone, she was everyday people. Mary's very name is Miriam in Hebrew, and thus she is the namesake of Miriam, the sister of Moses, who, if you'll recall, used her cunning and persistence to save her baby brother and set in motion his rise in the house of Pharaoh. And Miriam would be there tapping her instrument and rallying the fearful Israelites across the Red Sea with the song attributed to her name, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, horse and rider, God has thrown into the sea. Mary is more than a symbol of poverty and humility. She is the steward of a world-upending story of liberation and providential care which she affirms when she sings that the child she bears, God will use to topple the mighty from their thrones. She is also the enduring caretaker who will be present as Jesus grows and console him in his last hours of agony. For early Christians wrestling with the creed, Mary had another namesake in Israelite history. She was to them the Alma of the prophet Isaiah. As in the verse often heard around Christmas tide, behold, the Alma would conceive and bear a son called Emmanuel, 
God with us. Isaiah was speaking here of a great redeemer through whom the exiles might return to their homeland. For some, that redeemer was interpreted to be Cyrus, the Persian conqueror of Babylon who let the captive Jews return to Jerusalem. To others, it was Jesus, and to others, a Messiah yet to come. But in their interpretations, early Christians became drawn to the word Alma, which could in Hebrew mean a young woman of childbearing years, or it could mean a virgin, the very source of the miracle that is Christ's birth. Either way you see it, the very idea of the creator of heaven and earth conspiring to partner with a young Jewish woman of the first century is quite the miracle. Isaiah's Alma remains nameless, but Mary has a name, identity, and a power that leap off the pages of Scripture into the everyday lives of those seeking God. Mary has a surprising way of showing up in the everyday lives of diverse peoples and cultures. She was the subject of reverence around the dinner table of my childhood Irish Catholic friend. She was the hope of my Muslim friend Ibu Patel's father who made a habit of prayerfully lighting a candle in her honor at Notre Dame's Grotto of Our Lady. But lately I've been drawn to the way that Mary showed up in the French countryside for an African-American woman theologian named Christina Cleveland. Cleveland was going on pilgrimage to visit the black Madonnas found throughout Europe where you'll find over 400 such statues of the Virgin Mary throughout many churches and cathedrals. Some were intentionally painted a dark hue and others have turned that way because of age and exposure to the elements. One day Cleveland found herself face to face with the black Madonna in the cathedral of Moulin. The Madonna stands about three feet tall. She sits on this imposing altar with this upward gaze and Cleveland likened her to, quote, a general on a horse. Not the idea of Mary we usually have. This was the same Madonna, it turns out, that Joan of Arc, the patron saint of France, prayed before in 1429 on her way to lead troops for the liberation of France and its peasants from English control. Cleveland wondered whether Joan of Arc, teenage girl who had to dress in men's clothing in order to be taken seriously and march her troops into battle, whether she questioned if she was sacred. How many times have you stopped to wonder, am I sacred? Am I of great worth? How many times have the women in your lives, mothers and sisters and spouses, known their worth? Do the 100,000 black, Latino, and indigenous women who are missing right now in the U.S. know their worth? Do the 129 million girls around the world who lack educational opportunities know their worth? Do those trying to break workplace barriers and glass ceilings know their worth? Do all the women in your lives, our lives, our city, and our church know that we know 
their worth? Do we enable them to rise to the heights to which God calls them and us all? Joan of Arc left her encounter with the Black Madonna to face the menacing armies believing, quote, I have God, my Lord, who I know, who, I will, who will know how to clear the route for me. It was for this, she said, that I was born. Only a mother of God with power and grace could give young Joan such boldness. Remarking on Joan's story and her own Cleveland observed that those who are among society's least sacred are, quote, made sacred by Mary's identification with them. She concludes, then truly all are sacred. It is Mary's very human identity through which we see the worth, goodness, and power of those our world has left behind. It is in this Lenten season that we in the church confront most acutely the broken and sinful side of our nature. We agonize over how God in Jesus redeems what Immanuel Kant calls the crooked timber of humanity. We feel shame in who we are, our shortcomings, our fleshiness. So it's no surprising when we cut, paste, and confine the image of God and Mary and our own faith until they not only conform to the rigid categories of our culture or times, but until they become mere abstractions of otherworldly purity, maybe the impassibility a platonic philosophy, or the supernatural power, that like the Greek gods and demigods. All because we would rather run from our humanity than embrace it. Because it's all too easy to find the godliness of Jesus in his conception by the Holy Ghost. But the scandal and truth of the creed is this. The woman known as the God-bearer or the Theotokos, as our Eastern Orthodox cousins describe it, was not only bearing the God we know in Jesus through her womb, but also in her own fleshly, womanly self was bearing the divine goodness of God. Without the Virgin Mary, we miss what Reformed theologian Karl Barth reminds us of God's deity does not exclude, but include God's humanity. As it, and if, as they say, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, then the Jesus we confess must have the divine DNA of Mary's fierce femininity, the divine DNA of the overlooked but the resolute, the divine DNA of a liberator and a dance partner with the Holy Spirit. May those of us who wait on the Lord, as the psalmist tells it, consider that God is waiting on us to recognize the worthiness of those our world has overlooked and left behind. So the next time you encounter someone wondering their worth, look into their eyes or as the case may be, look into the mirror and see the power and the goodness of Mary and through her face, the power and the goodness of Jesus and through his face, the transcendent beauty and the power and the goodness of God. And then know that our humanity is not something to be disparaged, but loved 
and redeemed by God so that we might, like as our Lord and Savior does, do great deeds of power. Amen.